Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Beverly Mock. Uh, she's a grad student at Harvard, part of the David Liu Lab. And we're going to talk about uh, CRISPR and gene editing. So. Beverly, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for the invitation, Richard. Yeah. Well, tell me about your research. Yes. Yeah, so um, currently in David Liu's lab, I'm mainly focused on developing programmable tools that allow you to perform uh, precise modifications on the human genome. And I think my work is built upon um, what the uh, postdocs um, in the lab have earlier um, pioneered, which is a technique called uh, base editing. So um, Alexis Como and Nicole Bordelli who were previous postdocs in the lab, and others as well, they recognized that you could harness the power of the programmability of Cas9 to bind to DNA and fuse it to uh, DNA-modifying enzymes such as cytidine deaminases to perform single nucleotide changes um, within the genome. And you know this is significant in that uh, uh, because compared to uh, previous technologies, um, most of those uh, uh, applications rely on uh, creating double-strand bricks in the genome. So you're not really um, able to precisely change one uh, DNA base pair to another. Oh, so, okay. So can you can you go over that again? Like, can you compare the current methods versus this method on how, you know, um, sections of DNA are cut out or individual nucleotides? Right. So I guess in the traditional forms of uh, CRISPR-Cas9 editing, which some of you might be familiar with, um, it just it relies on the nucleus activity of the Cas9 protein to create double-strand breaks. So if you imagine it's like using a pair of scissors to cut um, the DNA and like shredding it into different pieces, right? So it's, I think this technique is useful if you want to destroy a particular gene. Let's say this gene is defective and you know, producing um, 
some protein encoded by that gene is harmful. So you can. Well, quick, quick, quick question here: When does this happen? Um, if you're going in there with, you know, with, again, Cas9, is it trying to cut when the DNA is in an unzipped format, or is it when it's zipped, it doesn't need to be actively, um, you know, in the process of, of transcription? Right. Yeah. So that's a good question. Yes. So. Um, it doesn't just go... Okay, there are different flavors of Cas9, right? But um, for the ones that are most commonly used, they only become activated when you supply it with a guide RNA. So what this guide RNA does is that it um, targets your Cas9 protein to the DNA of interest that you want, such that the cutting only happens when the guide RNA finds its target within the genome. Okay. So, but again... So this tends not to happen when the DNA is in an unzipped, uh, you know, in the, in the process of transcription. Yeah, that's right. It shouldn't happen unless, you know, uh, it finds its target and then opens up the DNA to create the, that single-stranded uh, substrate or for the cutting to happen. Yeah, but while the organism is, you know, while the cells are alive, I mean, I would think they're, you know, the DNA is continuously in various parts forming stem loops and opening and closing and, you know, transcribing, and how do you make sure that it's it's not happening in an inopportune time or it causes an error? Yeah, so actually this is a concern, though. So you're right in that, you know, it's possible that, you know, during, as, it's, as the Cas9 tries to search its genome for its target, it might encounter like, these sort of, like, say, stem loops or, like, open regions, like, transiently open regions of the DNA. And in such cases... You know, we, we are hoping just that the probability of encountering those will be much lower than it trying to like find its target because the interactions with this sort of like non-specific regions of DNA tend to be quite weak. So uh, it, there is a possibility that it could happen, but we're hoping that it's, you know, the, it's less likely to do that because it's, it's less likely to bind to those non-target regions and instead you know, hone in on its target uh, uh, sequence and then it will bind uh, to that target sequence with a very high affinity and like uh, stick on to, to, to it until maybe some other cellular protein comes in and knocks it off. But yeah, this, this idea of, you know, exerting its activity on non-specific regions of DNA is indeed a concern um, for a lot of genome editing tools. Well, so when current tools do the double-stranded break, right. um, how do they... Then what? How do they, you know, like what would be the normal, if you do a break and then you do nothing else, what would be the normal repair mechanism? And, right. you know, how much time do you have? And like, how do these, how does it then act once the break is made? Yeah. So once a break happens, um, you know, the cell's uh, DNA repair machinery starts to kick in. So when the cell sees a double strand break, you know, it can resolve it in two ways, right? So in one way, you know, it tries to repair it, um, but that repair outcome might not be very perfect. So it could lead to like, you know, insertions or deletions within that, that uh, in that uh, region where you created that break. So that is not ideal, right? Because, you know, you're essentially, you know, introducing an unintended change in the nucleotide sequence as a result of that break. But in some cases, um, you know, in, if you can say supply it with like a template DNA, then, it's possible that it undergoes this process called a homologous uh, end joining or homologous uh, DNA repair, where you know it's able to repair your DNA um, precisely and correctly, you know, back to its original sequence. So it's I think there's 
a lot of uh, existing work or like uh, even current research that tries to explore what are some cellular factors that would favor the repair outcome um, towards one or the other, right? So like, how would you disfavor the, um, the creation of all this like unwanted insertions and deletions and like favor the uh, repair outcome that you actually desire or you intend to introduce as a result of creating your double strand break? So right now, when there is a double stranded break, you know, again, the repair mechanisms are activated. But in the meantime, how does the process finish or continue the traditional CRISPR-Cas9 process? So I think in the traditional, um, it's I, I don't think it's any different from how a cell would actually treat a repair of like a DNA lesion that it sees. So the, the in terms of like the time scale of the repair, um, I think you introduce double strand break by the Cas9, you know, and um, uh, repair proteins can come in, kick the Cas9 off the um, the site that needs to be repaired, and then the cell does its own thing to, you know, uh, repair that, that that lesion that it sees on the DNA. And once the repair is done, I think the repair proteins can come off. And I think depending on, it's like a continuous, it's a dynamic process, I think. So if your Cas9 protein is still floating around, it's still being expressed um, by, you know, whatever like plasmid that you introduce, then I think it can, you know, it's possible that it could just retarget that site for like a double strand break again, right? And then you have the repair coming in. So it's just, it's a continuous process, I think, until maybe if you run out of Cas9 or the DNA site has been modified so extensively that the Cas9 can no longer recognize that site for binding. Okay, I gotcha. And then uh, this new process that you're working on, what's that like in comparison? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, so I guess I, um, for this one, so in this process, the main difference or base editing is that it doesn't introduce double-strand breaks. So instead, how you create that change in um, nucleotide bases is that it relies not so much on the Cas9 protein per se, but it um, it relies on a protein that's fused to the Cas9. And that enzyme um, that we've used are uh, like either cytidine deaminases or um, adenine deaminases. So what these enzymes do is that they convert your DNA bases, say it could be a C or a um, A, into an intermediate, which gets resolved by the cells like repair machinery into like a thymine or a, a guanine. So what this means is that without introducing double strand breaks, you can uh, precisely uh, convert either a CG base pair to a TA base pair or vice versa. So hmm, how precise can you be? I mean, out of all you know, three some odd billion nucleotides, you can literally pick an exact one that you want. So yes. long as it's, you know, in the right spot, it's accessible. 
Yes. Okay. So in terms of precision, I think it can be controlled on two levels, right? So the first level would be the um, the control um, based on your guide RNA sequence. So this, if we recall earlier, this guide RNA sequence is responsible for directing where the Cas9 the Cas9 protein binds to. So okay, if you can dictate the guide RNA sequence. That means you can localize your Cas9 and the DNA-modifying enzyme to the target site you want, right? So that's the first level of control. And then the next level is, okay, so now you say you have this enzyme that's parked on the DNA, but there's there could be like, what, 20, 30 bases around that region, right? So how do you know which, which CG base pair, which um, um, TA base pair you want to target? So this second level of control comes in when... Uh, because these enzymes that do the uh, the deamination process uh, process actually only works on single stranded DNA. So what this means is that the um, the substrate for these enzymes are actually um, constrained within that single stranded uh, bubble that's created when Cas9 binds to its target site. And yeah, that's that, good because then you have like we just discussed, then you have much less off target effects. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So that's why, and that bubble, it's like maybe like four to eight base pairs. So in theory, if you can, you know, uh, if your target is just within that four to eight base pair of the bubble, then only then uh, the deaminases would carry out it, that reaction to convert the DNA base pairs. So you can actually achieve like pretty exquisite levels of specificity uh, with base editing. But um, I know there's you know lots of repeats. In the, in the human genome, so when you're looking to, you know, to clip out one nucleotide, how do you make sure that it's not part of a, uh, a sequence that's repeated a thousand times, and you accidentally clip out, you know, that same nucleotide all over the place, and you didn't mean to? Yeah, actually, yeah, I think this is a very good question. So, like you mentioned, right, there are diseases like uh, Huntington's, for instance, where it's caused by you know many repeats of like a certain uh, a DNA. So, I think in those cases. You know, it it is very tricky um, to say like you want to you know like precisely you know just target within or to perform base edits in those like specific regions. So maybe instead of using base editing, I would say, you know, if you want to actually like clip out, you want to remove like large chunks of DNA from the genome. Then in that case, for larger genomic rearrangements, um, I don't think you know you um, want to use base editing per se. But maybe you might want to try like alternative forms of genome editing, um, be it um, HDR or the latest like um, prime editing, where you can perform larger genomic rearrangements um, instead of uh, performing like single nucleotide changes, like uh, because of the difficulty in like recognizing those repeat sequences. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, if the guidance system can look at you know, stretches of DNA instead of just single, I mean, it would have to, I guess it would have to look at stretches in order to be able to determine, okay, right. the right context. Otherwise, right. how could it, you know? Yeah, I think, yeah. So I, so there are people um, both within our lab and outside of our lab that try to look, that are actively look, working on um, um, diseases that have uh, repeated expansions. And I think it's a lot, you know, it is definitely, it seems like results seem promising, right? Um, but I think a lot of effort has to go into screening for the guide RNAs that can bind specifically to the site that you want. Or how can you pick out, you know, like um, sites within that repeat region, which would be 
you know, recognized by your guide RNA um, uh, in a very specific manner. So it is definitely possible. But, you know, as I mentioned, there are other tools as well that could complement the efforts of base editing. You know, just how they do sequencing, the longer the fragments that you can sequence, the better. You know, it's like Sanger sequencing versus like Illumina, et cetera, that, you know, you get very different results. That's why I asked, how long can the guide be? How much of a stretch of base pairs can it look for to be like oh, ultra right. specific? Yeah, so, uh, okay, in the traditional um, guide RNAs, most of the time it's like between, say, 20 base pairs. So you design your uh, uh, guide to have this like 20 base pair of like recognition site. And, uh, you know, with that, you can actually search within the whole genome for, you know, the site that you want. But like, uh, but, you know, as you said, like 20 base pairs is not that long, right? So there is um, some associated like off targets um, as well, you know, uh, when whenever you use like any RNA guided uh, systems like Cas9. But yeah, so you, all you need is actually just 20 base pairs to um, search for your target um, within the genome. Okay, I got you. And how do you decide what to target in the first place? Like, I've, I've heard that certain stretches of, you know, base pairs, parts of them are maybe involved in other genes or whole parts of them. I mean, it's not like if you have a stretch of base pairs from like, you know, position 1,000 to 1,046 that they're only for that one gene. I thought there was like overlap and stuff. Is that true? Yeah, so um, it's it's pretty... I mean, till this day, I'm still pretty amazed at how you're able to distinguish a 20 base pairs you know, from all other like uh, possible sequences that are very similar to the that 20 base pair that you design. But uh, I think it's so. Okay, there are a few constraints as well as to you know um, where the Cas9 binds, right? So if you supply it with a 20 base pairs it actually needs to have this like recognition sequence called the PAM. So, um, it, you know, it can vary to, um, uh, between like three to five nucleotides, right? It's a very specific like sequence context. And so in addition to that 20 base pairs, it needs this like uh, recognition motif that's maybe like slightly um, upstream of that target sequence before it can bind. So I think with this added layer of um, requirement, then it narrows down the possible um, search space for your Cas9 protein because of this um, uh, recognition sequence or the PAM sequence. Well, what's the error rate on this process? And what do you think is the source of the errors? Like either it just fails to work or, you know, it, it does the wrong area. Right. So actually, um, I think in terms of the error, okay, so the most... Um, so the most basic one would be like just efficiency, right? Maybe your your enzyme that you're trying to modify, uh, the, the, the enzyme that's doing the modification isn't as efficient enough, so you get low efficiency. But in terms of the errors, I think the biggest error is performing unintended edits at sites which you don't want. And I think this is true in that, you know, there have been a lot of work that's been um, uh, uh, published on studying the off-target um, effects of Cas9. So um, it's, you know, it's well established that, you know, there are both uh, Cas9 dependent and Cas9 independent off targets, and all these uh, can contribute to the error rate. So in terms of like how high of an error rate, I think, um, you know, 
I don't have a good sense, you know, as to like what are numbers like, but uh, I've read um, like uh, uh, literature that's you know have shown that you know at, if you just look at an individual site, for instance, like let's say it's an individual off-target site, you know, you can get um, editing efficiencies of like you know maybe as low as like 0.5 percent or even as high as like 10, 20 percent. So I think the problem comes in is when you see such high levels of editing, they say like 10, 20 percent at a site which you know you don't want it to be there. And I think it's more of a concern if that site is like a gene that encodes for a protein, because that means that you know you could potentially be messing up with like the protein sequence and ultimately the protein function. Um, yeah, so all these even if it's um, not a coding area. Yeah, so, the regular, regulatory areas right. still could up or down regulate something significant. That's right. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think a lot of people are still discussing like, oh, if it's in a non-coding region, you know, maybe it's not that bad. I mean, it, you know, the, I mean, the answer is still like probably unknown, right? Like, you know, if, if it could be the case, of, okay, maybe performing this, like if, if the single nucleotide change, yeah, might not really affect the regulation. Okay, then that's great. But then if it does, then, you know, even if it's a non-coding region, it can still be pretty harmful um, to the individual. So I think, you know, a lot of more work has to be done to understand, you know, just what are the regulatory sequences in the human genome? Um, what are the functions that they uh, perform and how, uh, you know, how are the, uh, how is the regulation affected when you have all these off-target edits? Well, what what um, are you using mouse models, or what creature are you doing this in, or is it just in a test tube so on? Yeah, so I think um, ideally, you know, you probably want to do it in an animal model. So I think in a lot of like preclinical um, work, right? So okay, well, I think the easiest is most people usually work with cell lines, right? But then again, cell lines are not really um, even if you work with like human cell lines and all animal cell lines, they're still within a test tube. So then the next level is, okay, you can do it in animals, right? So you can do it in mice, you can do it in non-human primates. And I think, you know, those have been the, um, like, uh, the, uh, the, like the most, um, the bulk, forms the bulk of um, your, uh, the studies of um, off-target um, editing uh, of this CRISPR-Cas9 systems. Uh, I think in terms of like uh, CRISPR-Cas9 clinical trials, I think most of them are still in the early stages, you know, where you're trying to evaluate for like safety or side effects. Um, I think, but however, I do recall reading a uh, an article that says um, they were trying to use um, um, Cas9 in CAR T um, therapy, and um, they recruited like a few patients. Um, I think about maybe less than ten, and to see, you know, if these ex vivo edited uh, cells when they introduce it into um, human patients um, you know could it improve patient outcome i think this was a study that was conducted in upenn and i think what the researchers found was that um you know there were actually off-target edits right they actually found off-target edits or that were very low okay so that was good but the concern for them was actually around the site that um the cas9 was binding to they actually had like some edits that were, um, uh, um, uh, you know, not what they were aiming for, right? So it's just happening around the site where the Cas9 was binding. But interestingly, what they found was that over time, those, like the population of those like cells, which had the um, unintended edit, 
actually slowly uh, decreased. You know, so it, it wasn't like persisting long enough in a human patient. So I think this is another question as to, okay, maybe, you know, if you do end up with an off-target edit, is it possible that um, it will be outcompeted by the cells that contain your intended edit um, in the long run? So I, well, I guess also too, I mean, you know, even after you do an edit, if it is successful and on target, in subsequent, uh, you know, transcription events, maybe right. the body sees it as an error and still wants to repair it. Right, that's true, yeah. Does it, that happen? You know, does the effect diminish over time as well? Yeah, so I think it's, but I think, okay, if if that error has already been, um, um, okay, I think if you perform the off-target edit, for instance, right, you know, and then it stays within that genome, um, I don't know how is the cell going to like pick that out, you know, as an error in subsequent like transcription processes. But I think how it can be outcompeted is if your, um, the cells that you edited, right, the intended cells that you edited um, confers a greater level of fitness compared to the cells oh. that do have your desired edit. I mean, the body has to recognize self though to do error repair during any DNA transcription event anyway. How does it do that? How does it know what self is? Where is the information contained? So it knows, okay, there was an error. Let's try to fix it. Yes. So in terms of errors, right? So I think, um, so, okay, let's say for instance, if there's like a mismatch, a DNA mismatch, right? Um, uh, Repair. So there are DNA repair proteins that specifically recognize that mismatch because maybe that mismatch could represent uh, could be could present itself as a bulge in the DNA, for instance, or there are some changes in the DNA structure which the cell recognizes as unusual. So then that's where all the DNA repair proteins start to crowd around um, that site of error. And in, re- and in turn, those DNA repair proteins start to recruit other factors that, you know, um, that, that come in and try to repair that error. So I think the cell, the DNA repair within the cell has an inbuilt system to recognize um, lesions that are not supposed to be there. Um, the, well, that's yeah. what I mean. You know, how does it know that? Like, let's say I have cystic fibrosis and right. you do this process on my lung cells, but, you know, there's other cells in my body that still are the same way. They still have that one, you know, snip, you know, then what? Would my body not want to go back to the state where, all the cells, you know, have the same quote unquote error or substitution. You know, if you, you know, how do you get all the cells of the body to do this? And yeah. maybe you don't okay. need all the cells to do it, but how do you, does it, rec- you know, again, does it become like a foreign, does it become foreign tissue now when you do this to a population of cells? So, okay. I don't think it would be recognized as foreign because, you know, the only difference could be, let's say, maybe you, if you correct something, then the protein starts, the protein behaves in a different way. Right. But I think the the way to go about you know um like f- maybe like fully converting you know or trying to you know convince the this the, the human bodies like oh let's just take out all the bad stuff and you know put in all the the the, the cells that contain your correct edit is that you if you have a very high level of um editing in the first place so that means you need to come up with a genome editing tool that's efficient enough to generate this like a high level of edit and you know if let's say if you have 100 cells, right? And 60 of those cells contains your correct edit and 40% don't. So if you just, you know, if we assume that if the cell just, you know, 
through like cell division and cell replication. I think, you know, those 60 cells will replicate and become like, you know, like 120 cells and like, you know, it just grows exponentially, right? So I think over time, you know, it's possible that you might not need 100 cells to see a phenotypic rescue, for instance, right? Um, Maybe just 60% rescue or even less than that is enough. So I think... Well, there's uh, there's cell-to-cell signaling with any, you know, within and across different cell types. So right. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's also quorum sensing too, just like bacteria do. Like if I have a population of like hepatocytes and now 10% of them are different, you know, that, that could be a big problem. And I wonder what the, you know, now the cell-to-cell communication may be different. Like, you know, you do a knockout of one nucleotide or a change of it. What are right. the epigenetic results? You know, what is the up and down regulation and the, you know, the histone modification, all that doing, and how different does that make those affected cells versus the, you know, the, the background population of cells? Yeah, actually, I'm not sure about um, how the epigenetics or in terms of like how the immune system will recognize like these edited cells. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with, okay, if the protein, okay, so a lot of these um, recognition systems rely on like receptors on the surface of the cell, right? So I think it would be more of an issue if the protein you're trying to target is actually a cell surface receptor. So that means it will be exposed on the surface of the cell and that's how we can communicate with um, like other cells of the immune system. Um, but let's say if it's a protein that's cytosolic, so it just stays within the cell, you know, it never gets like trafficked out, it never gets exposed, then it might not be so much of an issue um yeah but in terms of like exact yeah i i don't i don't think i know exactly it's um, just it's just something for you to consider like you know extracellular vesicle production and packaging and cargo could change based on a change you make and then you know literally the localized microbiome around the population of cells may change because now maybe uh, metabolite production is altered and the bacteria that need those metabolites or that sugar from the cells, you know, they change in response. I mean, it can, it could potentially create a whole cascade of, of things that I don't even know if anyone's even looking, but I yeah, would think it would be important to, to evaluate all that if possible. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. Now that you mentioned it, I don't think I've, there could be, but you know, maybe I just never uh, came across it, but yeah, you're right in that. I don't think I've actually seen any like, uh, you know, like, very like comprehensive or detailed studies that look at how you know a say a CRISPR edited mouse for instance versus a non CRISPR edited mouse like how different are their gut microbiomes right yeah I don't think I've come across a study like that and I think now that you've mentioned it it is actually an aspect which you know should be considered as um, yeah wait, well, wait, well hurry up, hurry up and get additional funding so you can do that too. <laughs> Yeah, maybe maybe not in uh, David's step, but I'm pretty sure this would be something that a lot of people are, you know, you might give them an idea to. Well, I just pointed out to you because I I did this one interview a while ago, a lady named Florencia McAllister, and she's studying pancreatic tumors. And they found that the microbiome, there's first of all, there's a pancreatic microbiome. And second of all, the microbiome of the tumors was different from the localized healthy cells. So I'm just guessing that, Anytime you make a change to a cell, let's say through CRISPR-Cas9 or CRISPR-Cas, um, its localized microbiome, again, may change. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking that probably every cell just about in the body has a localized microbiome. Right, right. Yeah, this is interesting. Yeah, I think um, it's it's definitely worth 
um, you know, investigating further, especially if you know that the CRISPR editing that um, the target, for instance, or that, that you're aiming for, right, is like a signaling protein or something that, you know, is heavily involved in like crosstalk and to study how it actually affects the local environment of the edited cell. I think that could be useful, especially if, you know, people are trying to think about pushing um, CRISPR into as therapeutics, right? Then you actually need a uh, well-rounded understanding of what, you know, the, the, the protein is actually doing in the human body. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So what, what kind of conditions, you know, looking ahead in the future, if your research works, what kind of conditions is the lab focusing on or looking towards? Yeah, so I think, um, so, you know, I, we, so right now we're able to target both the nuclear genome and the mitochondrial genome. And I think, you know, um, some of the early work by others in our lab that have tried to use base editing nuclear genome, I think they've seen that, you know, it's able to, um, you know, rescue mice that, you know, suffer from like sickle cell disease or, uh, mice that suffer from like progeria, for instance. And I think, you know, there are people that are starting to explore the use of like base editing um, to, uh, you know, to, uh, to correct like cardiovascular diseases, right? And I think those are areas which are worth, um, you know, looking into. And in terms of the mitochondrial side, I think it's still in its early stages, right? Because, um, you know, this is the um, first time that we've, we've shown that you know you can actually perform edits in the mitochondrial dna um i think you know for the mitochondrial side you know it's probably there are a lot of um pathogenic um uh snips you know within the human genome that are still not well studied especially in the mitochondria and it's role in cancer or neurodegeneration for instance so i think it's a first step you know just having that tool to uh understand the biology behind many of these mutations would be useful and I think going forward, if it's able to, you know, help uh, correct some of these pathogenic mutations, then, you know, that would be absolutely awesome. But I think um, moving forward, the the use of CRISPR, right, um, for a lot of like blood disorders, cancer, or like um, um, uh, restoring uh, vision and inherited blindness, I think all these are actually really promising um, areas that uh, we should keep an eye out for. Yeah, and I would also, I guess, not underest- not underestimate the abilities of an individual cell because, you know, we're, we're taking this technology from single-cell bacteria, mm. and if they're able to accomplish this on their own, and, you know, the cell is the agent that is causing this to be utilized as this tool, then, you know, why would human cells, I guess, for lack of a better word, be less capable or stupid <laughs> compared to bacterial cells? They right. may be able to do a whole host of sophisticated things that we're not even looking for if we're looking only at just fitness. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing that, you know, how we've um, used like the immune system that was bacteria uses, right. To develop as a therapy that for humans. And yeah, there is definitely a lot more, I think, uh, uncharacterized, you know, systems, be it in bacteria and humans that are worth exploring because you never know when, uh, which or which system, you know, could be, like the next CRISPR. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, very good. Well, Beverly, what, what do you think is going to be possible in the next year or two? And what do you think will be more longer term, maybe five, 10 years? Yes. Uh, your research. Right. So in terms of research, I think, um, you know, using CRISPR, you know, to treat, I think like blood diseases, right. Um, um, it's really 
something that, you know, it seems like it might actually turn into a reality within the next, you know, five years or so, because there are really very promising results, you know, of um, uh, using, you know, CRISPR therapeutics in early clinical trials for like sickle cell disease, beta thalassemia, um, as well as, um, you know, some like, um, like uh, childhood blindness. And I think all for diseases, you know, that are easy to access. So like, for instance, right, um, ex vivo therapies where you can like take stem cells out of a patient, edit it and put it back into them. I think those have, those are more likely to, you know, um, be implemented in the near future. But I think in the longer term, you know, you know, delivery is always an issue, right? It's like, how do you get the, 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 uh, the Cas9 uh, protein into the desired target tissue, and how do you, um, you know, overcome like toxicity or like, uh, you know, look for off-target effects. So I think for tissues that are harder to access, like the brain, for instance, I think those might take a longer while to realize. But for you know early stages, I would say it's like um, you know blood diseases, maybe like CAR T, you know blindness. I think all these are areas which you know, could actually, um, you know, be treatments like in the very near future. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Beverly, what's the best place for people to find out more about the Lou Lab and about your work? Where can they go? Yes. So um, they could visit um, our lab website. So I think it's, um, yeah, you just, if you click like the um, David Liu, like Harvard, you know, the lab website is there. Um, We also have a Twitter account, I think. Um, It's uh, maintained by our in-house science writer. So we will try to update that more frequently, but um, if you want like the latest updates, I think David also tweets a lot on Twitter, so you could follow him. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of our publications are freely available online as well. And you know, I think everyone in the lab, you know, including David himself, is usually pretty open to you know, questions that the general public might have, you know, like, especially if let's say if someone knows of like, oh, I have, I know of a friend who suffers from this disease. Do you think, you know, base editing could help? You know, I think David has seen those sort of emails before and, you know, have tried his best to, you know, see how our work can help them. But yeah, I think a lot of our work is available on the group website. Yeah, that's great. Well, you've been very accommodating and friendly. So thank you, Beverly. And I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. And I hope that, uh, you know, people have taken away something useful from this. Yeah, very good. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.